Hello and welcome to this podcast from Faber. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Giles Foden, whom I met recently to talk about his new novel, Turbulence. Giles is the author of the Whitbread-winning novel The Last King of Scotland, about Idi Amin and his Scottish doctor, which was later made into an Oscar-winning film. His new book is set in the tense build-up to D-Day. With modern weather forecasting still in its infancy, predicting what the weather would do assumed huge significance to the fates of tens of thousands of men and the course of the entire war. Giles brings the reader up close to the men engaged in these agonising debates over the weather in 1944. Men operating at the limits of scientific knowledge, with the military pressing them ever harder for a clear-cut answer. Would it be safe to disembark thousands of men on the Normandy beaches in three days' time? In doing so, he achieves something remarkable. He makes the business of weather forecasting nail-bitingly exciting. I asked him where the idea for turbulence came from. Like a lot of things in turbulence, the idea of writing about the D-Day weather forecast came to me, in fact, from my father-in-law, Julian Hunt, who's one of the world's sort of great meteorological scientists. In the course of his work, he was head of the Met Office, the British Met Office, in the uh, 80s. While he was involved in the uh, one of the D-Day commemoration ceremonies, he found a lot of material about the D-Day weather forecast that, once we spoke about it, we realised had not really percolated into the public sphere. So that's really why I, I sort of thought it would make a good subject for a novel. Something which the book brought home to me very clearly was it was enormously difficult to create a weather forecast with a, a horizon of even three days ahead in the 1940s. The D-Day weather forecasters were grappling with the limits of predictability. Eisenhower needed a probably a five-day lead time to launch the D-Day invasion. At that time, it was probably really only scientifically possible to forecast about three days ahead. That's certainly what the British thought. The Americans' forecasters thought otherwise. They thought that it was possible to forecast five days ahead. So you had these two camps within the forecast team. And another element, a Norwegian forecaster and his assistant, who really dealt with trends, what we now know as weather fronts. Well, they knew them as weather fronts then. So you had these three different approaches, contradictory to a degree, and out of that came these two critical forecasts. One which put off the invasion that was originally planned for June the 5th, and the other which pretty much immediately put it on again. So you you had this question of scientists working right at the limit of knowledge, and that seemed to me a situation full of drama. One of the, the main springs of the plot is the existence of Wallace Ryman, who is a conscientious objector and also a highly gifted scientist who may hold the key to unlocking the, the mysteries of, of weather forecasting. Now, he was based on a, a real character, but unlike some other characters in the book, you know, you changed names and you, you, you created a fictional character from some of the, the real-life data. Tell me about creating him. As with the interest in D-Day, the figure of Wallace Ryman in Turbulence came from my father-in-law. He's in fact based on uh, a scientist called Lewis Fry Richardson, the inventor, really, of modern weather forecasting. In the early 1900s and the 1920s, Richardson devised a system of 
numerical weather forecasting. That's to say, assigning numbers to the different physical quantities of weather and using equations to work out what's going to happen. Now, it seemed to me very strange that you had this brilliant, brilliant man there during the critical days of the Second World War, but he's holed up in Scotland, he's pretty much a recluse, and yet at the same time, down in uh, England, the D-Day weather forecast team are trying to grappling with these scientific issues that they don't entirely understand. And the one man, perhaps, who might be able to help them isn't there. So that's the other element in the story that I wanted to sort of connect up these two these two um, strands of narrative. And the way I did it was to send a young Met Office employee, a very gifted uh, a mathematician himself, up to Scotland to see Wallace Ryman, to see if he can winkle out his secrets for the use of the D-Day team. And that's the point at which fiction takes over. Henry Meadows is a, is a, a creation of your own imagination rather than being based on a, a real-life character. It's strange. This is a strange thing that can happen when you're writing the kind of novels that I write, that you create a fictional character and parachute him in to a real historical scenario. And then suddenly, as your research continues, you suddenly find the person that you've invented, find that he actually existed historically. So although they didn't send someone up to spy on Richardson slash Ryman in the way that happens in the novel, there was a character, a man called George Robinson, who was assistant to the leader of the D-Day weather forecasters, James Stagg. And I think probably he's the kind of real-life character that I was gesturing towards in, in my imagining of this figure. So, yes, I, he, he is invented, and the, the, that's the fictional element of the story, but it's very odd how you can suddenly find someone who existed, who seems to fit the template. And can I ask you what it is that particularly attracts you to, to fiction, which has quite close links and parallels with with historical reality i'm very interested in putting characters pretty ordinary characters really like like henry meadows or nicholas garrigan they might have a, some gifts but generally they're pretty much like you and me they're not really heroes i would say i like putting that kind of character into a situation where political or military or uh, other types of power are operating and seeing what happens because I, I feel that this is the situation we're, we're in most of us all the time we're, we're just trying to get on with our ordinary daily lives in, our, in their localised sphere and yet enormous great forces are working upon us all the time and that's something I, I've always been interested in, in, in dramatising in, in my fiction One thing which comes across very clearly from the book is that as often the case in wartime, it was a time of great scientific discovery and potential. And Henry Meadows is really the, the consciousness through which the reader experiences that. He, he is a young man, as you said, and he's, he's gifted, and he is sort of discovering these things and countering ideas. So, so it's a time of, of great excitement as well as time of international conflict. It's extraordinary how war does accelerate scientific development. In the case of uh, Henry Meadows and his, his finding out about uh, various aspects of turbulence, um, both as a uh, sort of meteorological phenomenon and um, something that operates in many, many other 
areas of life. I was not just interested in the in the mere facts of, of the narrative of scientific discovery, but also how all of us really are on a journey of knowledge. We're finding out uh, in the course of our daily lives, we're finding out about all sorts of things, but mostly we're finding out about ourselves. And for Henry Meadows, it's as much a journey into himself as it is a journey into the mysteries of turbulence. He's growing up, really, isn't he? He's becoming an adult. He's going from being a a student and a, a young man to, to being an adult, I suppose. You could certainly say that Henry Meadows is, is growing up, but I also feel that perhaps we don't entirely grow up. We, we do tend to keep in the cycles established in childhood and early teens. That's the great challenge of, of human life, perhaps, is to master one's destiny in that, in that way. Probably it's what a lot of interesting novels are about, this process, I, I think a cri- critics would call it of individuation, of finding out exactly what it means to be a particular individual. I suppose he's, he's got two potential models in the book. One is, is first Ryman and then, and then Pike, and they're kind of antithetical types of scientist. And he's kind of, te- I suppose, sort of testing his own self against them and then kind of growing beyond them, it seemed to me. That was kind of the journey he was making. These two, one, one a pacifist, one a kind of arm-waving enthusiast for all kinds of technology that could participate in war, and he's kind of finding his own way, which is neither of those positions. Yes, Meadows is is having to choose, really, between Geoffrey Pike, on the one hand, who's a real character, invented all sorts of extraordinary machines and techniques that were used during the Second World War, uh, and indeed before and afterwards, until he tragically died, but he's very keen to use science for any kind of military purpose. On the other hand, we've already talked about Wallace Ryman, based on Lewis Richardson, left the Met Office because he discovered that his equations to do with turbulence were being used by poison gas experts. So I suppose one's dealing there with issues that are still with us in terms of science. At what point should scientific research stop for some ethical reason. One of the things that I really enjoyed was this sense of build-up to D-Day. I was astonished by how successfully you could convey that by quite subtle means, because the, the foreground is the, the weather forecasters, but you get the sense of mobilisation on a, on a vast scale. Well, it was strange because you've got these uh, perhaps uh, six or seven uh, men, they were men, although there were many women in the, in the meteorological backup teams, working in different locations, conversing bizarrely by telephone uh, in, in conference calls, trying to thrash out the weather forecast. There's a real sense of sort of a closed room, lots of weather charts on the table, really a lot of people swearing and scratching their heads. And then outside, this enormous great machine of war that's being wound up and is waiting to spring. A lot of it was about traffic, a lot of it was about enormous great numbers of military vehicles on the roads, either tanks and other vehicles, uh, lorries full of soldiers, and all, all the men and machines gathering in groups all over southern and central England. I think that they were actually called sausages, these areas of delimited land into which uh, men and machines were poured 
ready for the the word go. And what Meadows and the other forecasters are being asked to do is to kind of take the infinite complexity of the natural world and somehow reduce it to something which the human military mind can actually seize hold of and make something of. And that, that's that's their predicament, really, isn't it? They're caught between the chaos or the or the 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 um the mutability of the natural world and this this war machine which needs a, a red light or a green light. Yes, on the on the one hand, you've got the changeability of the atmosphere where we can measure some things, but we're never ever going to be able to measure all of it. There's so much happening on scales that we can't see or understand. And those measurements that we do take are an artificial mental construct that using systems like Lewis Richardson's, we produce our best guess at what the weather's going to do. It's always going to be a bit difficult. The longer the period of the forecast, the less accurate it's likely to be. It's a question of probabilities. On the other hand, you've got this great machine of war that has to get across the channel and establish a foothold. It has to happen on a particular day. Enormous organisations such as kind of organisation we, we don't seem to be able to do anymore. If you look at something like the Dome or uh, other, you know, God forbid, the uh, Olympics in Britain, you get a real sense that somehow we're not so good at this anymore. So you've got these two things, as you said, the complexity of the atmosphere and also the practical necessity and also complexity of an invasion. And that's why these weather forecasters were under so much pressure, because it's always difficult to forecast something for a very particular day. We can see the trend or the pattern, but uh, especially if you've got a long lead time like that. Mm. And I, I really like the fact that there remained a question mark over the weather forecast. Although the landings went ahead, as we know, and were successful in a sense, there was still a question mark over how successful the forecasting had actually been. For years after D-Day, meteorologists, those who are involved, and indeed historians of meteorology, argued about was the forecast right or not. In a way, it's the wrong question. It's perhaps wrong to think was the forecast right or wrong in a binary opposition. It was more a question of percentages. It was right enough, just right enough. But as Churchill said, we took a very great risk with the weather. Many of the requirements that the military and all its branches had put upon the forecasters were not actually fulfilled. That's part of the reason so many people died in the assault, but it really was far fewer than it might have been by a long, long way. Meadows comes from an Anglo-Irish Catholic background, colonial childhood with, with tragedy in it, and I wondered how much stress you put on that as forming the character of the, the man that he becomes. Meadows has, has a colonial African background, and I think that's certainly part of his makeup, part of the reason that he acts the way he does. I mean, this whole, the whole relationship of, of this Second World War story with my own interest in, in Africa as explored in other books is something that I puzzled over during the writing of Turbulence. And slowly, 
the two things came into an alignment through Meadows' tangled memories of, of his African childhood. The alignment was this, that really the only way that you are going to face up to or, or square up to the um, infinite complexity of the atmosphere and indeed this wider notion of the environment is not to colonise it, not to see it only with a human perspective. That's where the connection was really, that I, I became interested with this sense of, of the 19th century European experience in Africa largely being, being one of uh, only seeing that continent through European spectacles, let's call it. And I think we're in danger now of uh, colonising the natural world. Perhaps we've always done this in the same way. Whereas if we're to have a properly holistic experience of nature, we mustn't uh, make the mistakes of our imperial forefathers. You give Meadows a nice phrase towards the end of the book. He talks about a promiscuity of perspectives. And that really, I suppose, is his epiphany. He sees a way through that's neither one position or another, but taking things from all of them. And it seemed to me that was that was a, a useful way of thinking about scientific discovery, but it's also a useful way of thinking about what a novelist is trying to do in, a no in writing a novel. Yes, I think what Meadows discovers is that you have to look at things in a lot of different ways if you're going to get anywhere close to the complexity of experience and, and indeed the, uh, the physical world itself. And yet uh, for a novelist this is a problematic issue because uh, part of what we want when we read I think is, is some kind of singularity of perspective, some particularity. It's perhaps to do with that notion of individuation we spoke of earlier. So it's a tricky thing. It was a hard, it's a, you know, it is what a, no a novelist does want, that sort of plenitude of view, but you can't sacrifice the sense of an individual either. And trying to get a balance between those two things is something I'm, I'm very interested in exploring. It's something I probably will explore in a future book to a greater degree but really maybe all one's doing is reproducing what it's like to be in the world that uh, we are alone we see the world through our own eyes and yet we're also part of a we we're part of a some kind of community and some kind of wider communal experience of living that in, in which we sort of partake of the environment around us ra rather than just taking from it. So so I guess writing and reading uh, are, all, are, are mimicking daily experience like that.